Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we are joined by the David Edwards. Good morning to you, sir. Good afternoon. Good, good morning. Good morning, Pete. It's a pleasure to be here. Listen, great to have you on. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to meet people across the Atlantic, across different oceans and seas. So, yeah, the world is indeed a small place. So it's uh, fantastic to have you on. So to give our listeners a bit of a background. So David R. Edwards served mostly lower income people on three continents over the last 35 years and is familiar with the challenges and unfairness of life. In 2018, while working with doctors, dentists, counselors, nurses, community health workers and others, he had an epiphany. The core challenge most people have is to generate the personal drive to direct their own life, enduring principles to guide and the most current uh, science-based tools to assist them through a bumpy and messy life. His first new book, New You, Who Knew, is an attempt to put into writing an easy-to-digest implementation guide that builds confidence, meaning esteem and self-compassion and balance. Awesome. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a great pleasure. So tell us, first of all, what, what does fire in the belly mean to David then? Well, you know, fire in the belly to me is the, the um, motivation or the drive that comes from within inside. It's not an outside. It's not getting a bonus. It's not getting laud or fame or, you know, being recognized. It's really, it comes from inside of you. And I like, I mean, I really like it when I saw your podcast and as I listened to it, you know, that fire in the belly. I mean, it's, it's an internal process, which I like because it's within my control versus like you just had elections in Ireland. Um, you know, that's out of my control. I mean, I can lay my one vote, <laughs> but, but, you know, otherwise it's out of my control. So I like focusing on things that I have a little more control over. It's always interesting, you know, getting that control. I mean, and that's that's something really what we're picking up in your bio. It's, I mean, is it control in your life or change in your life? Really, what what was it that really sort of sparked it off for you? Well, it was. Can I take a two steps back? Yeah, please do. And then I think I'll answer that question. As we talk, think about fire in the belly, and as we think about it, like from a work perspective. Um, I started working in healthcare in the United States, which I don't know, I'd, I'd be curious if, if you had listeners could do like feedback or, you know, polls if it was live or something, right? It's like, what do you think about healthcare in the United States? And I'm guessing most people would say nothing <laughs> if they're not in the United States. But uh, in the United States, you know, anyways. I could talk about healthcare a lot, but that's not really the purpose here. So I started working at what's called a community health center. And this is an organization that exists um, as a not-for-profit in order to meet the healthcare needs of a community of people. 
usually they're lower income because in America, you know, medicine is driven by profit. Um, so it's mostly private businesses. Um, and anymore over my career, say of 35 years, um, even the not-for-profit like hospitals, uh, Catholic hospitals, et cetera, um, have had to operate a lot more like for-profits. And so it's kind of an interesting mix, you know, in places like I think in Ireland, and you would correct me, but where I think healthcare is considered to be a basic right and is provided, right? I mean, I think the government provides it. Yeah, in the UK, in the UK certainly not not in in the Republic of Ireland, but then in the UK, yeah, it's it's a right for everyone, no matter race, creed, religion, age, doesn't matter, or money, hmm. yeah, <laughs> or that stuff. <laughs> and we all like money just fine, but uh, so in the US, you, we've kind of like halfway gotten there, <laughs> I guess I would say. Um, so I had this, you know, I kind of, I kind of uh, got my first real, I mean, I'd worked while I was going to college. Um, my first real full-time job, though, was at this community health center. And um, I started off as an accounting clerk, working part-time while I was going to school. Um, and then I graduated and they said, well, Dave's going to leave us if we don't give him a full-time job. And so they promoted me basically to be a, like a business manager. Um, so in the U.S., um, we have all these different insurance companies, and most people get insurance, uh, you know, from their employer. Although there's a program for people with lower incomes called Medicaid, where if you have less income, you can still get insurance, but it has a little more limitations on it typically. And if you're elderly, we have Medicare, which is another form of insurance for the elderly. And then there's all these hodgepodge where you're old and poor or you're old and not poor. And then you've got different kinds of multiple kinds of insurance. So in other words, if, um, if I'm selling fish in the market, it's really simple, right? Um, a fish is $3 a pound or it's $10 a pound or whatever it is. And if Mighty Pete bought it or David bought it or anybody else, it was going to be the same price. But healthcare, depending on your insurance, it can be a lot in the middle or very little, and it's complicated. And so the person in the business office basically figures out all these connections, relationships, all the hundred different ways that our healthcare business can get paid to provide services to try to optimize our revenue. Um, and if that sounds complicated, it seriously is. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. Um, anyways, but I was pretty good at it, evidently. And for the first time, even though I'd worked in accounting, you know, I worked in my little slice. Um, I kind of saw a little bit more of the picture. And we were able to bring in more revenue, which helped our business go from losing a little bit of money to making a little bit of money. And I felt really good about that. And evidently the CEO did as well, because after we doubled in size, um, he, they felt like they needed a, first like a chief financial officer or a finance director. And so I was promoted to be the first finance director. Uh, and we doubled in size again after just a couple of years. 
Um, and so it was, it was, it was like for a very young man, you know, I'd grown rapidly and the organization had basically tripled in size the six years that I was there. But I, um, I lived on I lived on the north side of Seattle, which is a city, a good sized city on the west coast of the United States. And I lived in the north side of Seattle. And then they had some of the worst traffic in the world in the middle. And then I worked on the south side of Seattle. And so my commute was about an hour and a half each direction, a little more than when it rained, a little longer. Um, and I was working a lot of Saturdays because we were busy. You know, we were doing stuff. We were opening locations and growing and doing all those things, which was fun. But I realized that uh, I'd gotten married and I had a daughter and we had a second one on the way. And uh, and I realized this is not consistent with my values. I cannot work this many hours or be gone from home this many hours because I was working, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and, and so I talked to the CEO, Rogelio is his name. And I said, uh, um, you know, I, I can't sustain this. And we talked about some options, but in the end, I just decided to leave. And, um, um, and I left on really good terms. I still talk to those folks every now and again, even all these years later, but, uh, um, and I went to work and I took a job that was much closer to home with the cable company. And there's nothing wrong with cable. I like getting cable and lots of other people do. Cable is kind of, you know, television, basically, comes through the landline, you know, under the ground. Um, and, uh, and I worked there for about six months and uh, it was a $500 million company, big, big company. And back in 1987, so, um, and it was a division of a multi-billion dollar company back in those days. And I was an accounting manager. I had a, a room full of accountants and we did the books for these 90 different cable systems. Um, and it was all about money though. You know, that was our drive. And what I realized was my last job, well, we had money and we needed money. And I was pretty good at, you know, helping us generate money. Um, that really wasn't what we were there to do, right? We were there to serve people, to grow, to meet the needs of populations of people who had less access to health, uh, healthcare services, you know, medical, dental, behavioral, and, um, and then other things. I and mean, we did housing, we did employment, we did all kinds of different things that helped people who had more struggles. And, and what I realized was that that, had, that that caused me to have a fire in my belly to work all those hours and do all that commuting. And I hadn't even thought about it, right? I didn't even realize it. But when I went to work for this other place where there really was no mission, I mean, there was, but it was kind of on paper as all. Um, and and, and I didn't have any fire in my belly for that. I mean, I didn't mind working hard. And in fact, I don't know how to do anything but that. But um, I was not, I didn't have a fire in my belly for what we were doing. And, and it was really that first sense of what my company does, you know, what my work is doing, 
and why we're doing it. You know, what are we all about? What's our, our mission, our purpose, if you will, our passion to me makes a huge difference. Um, and at the end, and after about a year, I ended up leaving just because I became kind of miserable. And um, I mean, anyway, so I could give some more examples, but so anyway, so then I went back uh, making a less money, <laughs> but I went to work for like an elder care. So helping seniors, uh, a lot of them with dementia. And I worked in cardiology. So like heart care. In fact, I did that for about 11 years. Um, but it was very mission focused. You know, it was very much about why do we exist? What are we here? And that, you know, at work kind of provided the fire in my belly so that I felt like I'm working hard and we're doing good things. But it all makes sense. And it's for a bigger purpose. Does that make sense? It is. It's all about a bigger purpose because I think you get to a turning point in your life where, you know, the the praise of the job or the the chase or the impact, it's just not enough. It just doesn't do it, right? Even the money's not enough. It's it's not not financially enough. It's just it just the reward. As, as a mentor of mine says, the juice is not worth the squeeze anymore. There you go. <laughs> I like it. And so I really spent the rest of my career back working in healthcare and because that working with lower income, vulnerable populations, um, people with language barriers or other challenges. Um, so we'll scoop, we'll move ahead. Kind of getting back to your original question there. I do have some memory. <laughs> so we were talking about kind of the motivation of you all, what was going on when I had this idea for this book, this epiphany. And I was the CEO of a community health center in a rural area in Oregon, so still west coast of the United States. Um, and we, when I got there, we were pretty challenged. We lost money. We we didn't have a lot of focus. We um, were uh, had challenges. Our relationship in the community. We're asking for a lot of money from people. <laughs> And, you know, the, uh, my first literally meeting with the local hospital CEO, I walked into his office simply purely to introduce myself and say, hi, I'm Dave. I'm the new CEO at this healthcare organization that you know very well and have worked with in the past. And the first words out of his mouth as we shook hands was, David, I'm not your bank. Evidently, there had been a procession of prior CEOs who'd gone in and really the first thing they did was ask for money. And so um, that was a, a, a challenging start, perhaps, but we had an amazing, wonderful relationship. And our organization, you know, kind of got the business side in line. Um, we started to improve our quality of care and we started to engage in the community more so that after about four years, we had grown significantly. Um, we were very stable financially. Um, we had a great reputation in the community um, and we had the highest quality in the region as was measured by various healthcare metrics. Um, and I think something I'm most proud of was 
we had actually eliminated any differences in health outcomes if you were a majority population or a minority population. And that's typically not the case, at least in the United States. Um, and I assume that might be the case in other places as well, but, but I'm not confident because I don't know that. But, uh, but anyways, and so we were in this favorable circumstance, and I'm going to, it's a little bright there, um, um, to replace our main health center. And, and we basically were going to demolish it and build a brand new health center. Excuse me, just a second. The sun's coming out, and I think I'm going to. You know, we never like to deny the sun. I know. <laughs> we don't want to deny the sun. We don't want to be overwhelmed by it either. So um, we um, we're going to build this new health center. So it was going to be twice the size as a forty thousand square foot construction project. We were intent on building this very differently. And so the typical model: you've got doctors are in this office, and dentists are over in that office. And the psychologist is in a different office and, and it's all split up and everybody sees you for their own little slice, right? So if I have some heart condition stuff, I'll go to the cardiologist over there. And if I have some, you know, general family practice kind of stuff, that'll go someplace else. And they don't often talk to each other. Now, is that similar in Ireland or in Europe from yeah. your experience? Disconnection between departments and different different bosses and different landowners and all the rest. It's yeah, it's I think it's the same the world over, unfortunately. There you go. And so as I've studied this, you know, this is this allopathic is what it's called, this allopathic model. Um has done wonderful, amazing things, right? Because we have all these advances in technology and knowledge, which is all wonderful. But it has denied us the natural ability to say that Pete was born as a whole person, as was David and as is everyone listening to the podcast or watching. And so we were all born whole. And frankly, we are better off if those that we seek help from for our health, you know, to optimize our health or to overcome challenges with our health, if they would think of us as a whole person. And it's not just as a health whole person, but as a whole person that spends the vast majority of their time outside of the healthcare system, hopefully at least, most likely. <laughs> and so, you know, um, most of my life has lived at work, at home, with family, with hobbies, you know, taking care of my physical self, my mental self. Um, it's in other things. And so what we had developed at this place was a model of care that says, you are a whole person. And we might have a doctor on your care team. We might have a dentist or a hygienist, a therapist, a health coach, um, a community health worker. We might have a nurse or medical assistant or all these different people. But you are the center. You are the focus. And you are, in fact, the captain of the care team. Imagine that. We expect you to be in charge so that when we develop together with you as a partner, 
a care plan, you have ownership of that and you're going to carry it out. You're going to have that motivation to carry that out outside of the health center where you spend most of your life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So yeah, sort of a more holistic view, if that makes sense. It definitely is. It, the idea was to have this holistic view because that's reality. You know, we always like it when things line up with reality. And so that's how reality was. And so we were going to be able to build a building for the first time around this model of care. And we had great staff. You know, the facility was going to be amazing. It was going to engage you immediately and help you become relaxed as you walked into the building using things like biophilic design and other technologies. Um, and so I had all these things that we were getting in line. I was very happy about it. And then this first wow, this epiphany was, let me think a second. It's amazing how it took 35 years to come to this conclusion. But uh, um, if you, the patient, are the captain of the care team, and we don't help you fulfill that role more successfully, how much difference are we really going to make? even though we've got all these other things lined up. And so it was really this kind of almost like it took me back. Wow. Well, I don't even know what that means. You know, I've done this for a long time now and I verbally recognize like intellectually, I, I can see this, but I don't really even know what that means. What are, what are those skills? Are they even available to be learned? Um, and so I started down a journey. And the second kind of big wow or epiphany was that as I was studying change models, so these are like psychological models about how and why people change. And there are, not surprisingly in psychology, different people with different ideas or theories about how that works. And so... Um, as I studied these various change models, something that you get better at as we age, and so I can be grateful for that, um, I had this second wow, which was at the foundation of all of these models of change is this idea of personal or intrinsic motivation. So as we think about like fire in the belly, that intrinsic motivation is for us without any external stimulus, what gets you up in the morning and helps you do the hard things that are going to move you forward in your life, but move you forward in the way that you want to, right? In the, direct, the directions that you've chosen to move, not what somebody else has wanted you to do. And so I got fired right around this time. <laughs> That's a whole nother story. Um, it's hard getting fired. If you've never been fired, um, it sucks. <laughs> have you ever been fired, Pete? I have once. Um, as you say, it sucks, right? It's, uh, it's uh, not a happy thing. It's like a grief process. I mean, I say this to people. I mean, we, we essentially get trauma every day of the week. That just happens to be a slightly more traumatic one. Um, and you've got to go through the stages. You know, you've acceptance, denial, anger. You know, you've your whole thing until you eventually get good with it. So, yeah, it's it's not exactly bad. feel your pain. <laughs> yep. And so I found myself without any money, but with some time on my hands. 
And, um, and so I thought I could go out and find another job and we'd have to move and all that stuff. Or I could really dive into this, you know, this kind of epiphany that I had. And so that's what I chose to do. That's what was personally motivating because I thought if I could figure out, even though I'm not working at this place anymore, this is a problem that as I you know, got into it more and more is universal. This is a challenge that applies to all areas of our life across all domains. And so I really started studying, well, what is intrinsic motivation? And there are three core foundations or themes. The first of them is our values. And I know you've had some podcasts where people have talked about values as I was kind of looking through, you know, your, your history there. So when I talk about values or I say values, what does that mean to you? Well, it's interesting because values previously, you know, people talk about core values, but a lot of people's core values, and it, it links in quite nicely to, to what you were saying, but people's core values typically are honesty, integrity, um, you know, all the usual things, but typically for me, they are generated on lack based emotions. So the reason okay. that we value honesty is because there has been a, a period in our lives where honesty has not been present through our, our own actions or others. So as a result, we hold this as a pedestal of this is our value set, right? So the problem is quite often that void becomes the value, which to me is problematic. Whereas actually now I would say I go further and say, Actually, my my soul value, which to me is a deeper, it's more subconscious set for me now is love, service, growth and connection. They are my values, my core, and they essentially don't have an opposite. You know, it's very hard to be anti-service. You know, you either are of service or you're not. I mean, it just it just is. So if we can bring those. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I mean, it's values are something which would sit quite strongly with me now. And I, I sort of sometimes when people say I really value integrity, it's like, well, what part of were what part of you was not being in, in tech, you know, with integrity? It's interesting. Right? There you go. Well, and and I don't know as you've talked to other people, and um, there are a lot of people who struggle with integrity, and I can see what you're saying, kind of like a positive value versus a defensive value. Yeah. Um, but I I wouldn't be at all surprised that a lot of people struggle with these what we might think of as like defensive values. Um, and I think, so, so I'll get into the research, I guess, because values have always been important to me as well. Mm. And so for me, some of them, it's interesting. So like, I think of for myself, um, belief or faith, transparency, integrity, charity, or kindness, right? These are some of my core values. Um, and what I recommend based on the research that I did um, to add power to these values is that we make them explicit. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I don't know. Do you guys have like Mexican food restaurants in Ireland? Yeah, we do. Not, not many, but we do have them. Yeah. There you go. And so if you decide I'm hungry, right? So it's afternoon where you are living. Uh, and I'm, I'm waiting for breakfast, but maybe you're thinking about early dinner today. So you think, and I'm hungry. Maybe we're both hungry. And we might be thinking, uh, yeah, Mexican food sounds good, right? 
But that's kind of vague, right? This isn't very actionable. But if I'm thinking, you know, I'm hungry uh, and Mexican food sounds good. And La Linda is a Mexican restaurant that's in town, but it's only about 10 minutes away. And I know that they're open and I can get in my car and I could drive down there right now and I'm going to get burritos with extra guacamole and sour cream. All of a sudden, that's become actionable, right? Instead of something vague, it becomes something that I can act on. It's some, something that can be, if you will, powerful. It's empowering in my life. And this is what is the case with most people that will be listening on the podcast, because this is what the research tells us, is that most of us, if we have any sense of our values at all, is that they're vague. Yeah, I like being or having integrity. You know, I like being trustworthy. Um, and so what I propose and what the research, I think, backs up is that we take our values and we make them explicit. So as you were noting, I can't have 27 core <laughs> personal values because that just doesn't work. We can't have 27 anything and have that be effective, right? And so I suggest for most people that we choose five. And, you know, and I, in my book, I propose a process. It's really straightforward. Um, it's very straightforward. And so you go through the process and you kind of narrow down, takes a little bit of discipline, uh, but not a lot, to my top five core values. And then I recommend that you make them explicit. So the first step in making something explicit uh, you won't even have to buy my book after this. Hey, so it's like a freebie. Um, is that you write down what in the world does that mean? So for like me, transparency is a core value. Well, what does that mean? So for me, what that means is that when I say something to Pete, who maybe you're a coworker or a friend, and then I say something to Mary, who's another coworker or friend, and I tell you version A of my story, and I tell Mary version B of my story. But then I might tell John version three and somebody else version four, and all of a sudden, I don't know about you, but I can't keep track of all the stories that I've told. And instead of that duplicitousness, you know, that kind of um, two-faced, hidden agenda kind of stuff, I don't have any place for that in my life, right? So I just tell people how I see it. And it's the same. It doesn't matter who I'm talking to. And for me, that's really important because I don't have a lot of baggage that I'm carrying. I don't have a lot of, uh, I don't have any fear, right? Because I just say how I see it. And you recognize that, you know that I'm going to do that. And after time, right, that helps me to be more trustworthy, which is another, I think, important value. But because of this core value of transparency, I don't have to worry about that because the other comes as a part of it. And so that's the power of having these core values that are aligned with enduring principles um, is that they serve us in many different ways. So anyways, you make it explicit. You have to write down what does it mean to you. Um, the second thing you should do is that you describe what the actions are. What are the behaviors? 
go along with that. So for example, I won't tell different stories to different people, right? Um, and you write that down and you make it very clear. This is what it looks like in real day-to-day -day life. And then the third thing that you do is you describe, and again, this isn't a novel. <laughs> you know, this is maybe a paragraph, a very short one or a sentence or two. But then you describe, why am I better off? Right? Why is that an advantage to me? And so you've all of a sudden, you've taken a whole bunch of values, and we all have a bunch of values. You've narrowed it down to what your core five are, and you've described what it means, what it looks like in my behavior, not just in some vague way, and then why I'm better off for living it. And that is the process of making your values explicit. If every one of your audience would do this, what the science and the research tells us, and which is, isn't it amazing that we've actually studied this? I mean, we've talked about values for thousands of years, right? Socrates and Plato talked about values. But now we have research that says, if I will do this simple process, which for most of us might take a couple of hours of mild effort and doesn't cost anything because I just told you how to do it for free. And so if we will do that, we will have greater meaning in our life. If you think about fire in your belly, having meaning is going to feed the fire. So you've got more meaning in your life. You've got a greater sense of well-being. So with all the things we don't control in our lives, which can kind of sap our well-being, when we live our values, we understand them, we've made them explicit, and we're living them, we have greater well-being, which is that sense of my life is okay. You know, my life is moving in a direction that I've chosen. And I feel good about that, right? So we feel good about ourselves. There's a little bit of self-esteem in there. And it doesn't require any outside influence, right? That truly is the fire in your belly. And then the third or and fourth benefits are that you have more clarity. Instead of fuzziness, you have more clarity. And don't we all need more clarity in a day of all these confusion and options and multiple voices all over the place telling us what to do, what to buy, what to want? Um, and then we also have less regret. Because what happens is when we have a vague sense of our values in our subconscious, they're there, right? It's there. But then because it's vague, you know, it isn't actionable. We do things that are inconsistent with our values. And then we have regret because that's, you know, that's where regret comes from. And so when we've made these things explicit, there's less regret. And isn't that nice? Regret is like having a backpack, you know, with rocks and useless stuff in it. They're not gold bars, <laughs> but just rocks. And so when we don't have regret in our life, you know, that backpack gets a lot lighter. And so this is just the first of the 10 principles, and it's the first core kind of thematic area in my book. But if all of the audience would simply do these simple things, it makes a huge difference in our lives. And the payoff, if you will, the benefit will start almost immediately. You know, some things we do, you know, take a lot of time. But this is one that 
starts to pay dividends almost immediately, and it just grows and gets stronger and stronger over time. Does that make sense as a kind of a, a just a, a primer on values? It does. I think, I mean, the, the, the very clarification process, and, and as you say, I think, unfortunately, very few people actually take that time, and that in itself, it's it sounds simple. It's a bit like you're saying, well, these are the things you just need to do. But, I mean, it's a bit like... Listen, there's, there's a world of YouTube out there and all the rest. You could get your degree by watching YouTube videos, but as, a, as another mentor of mine used to say, it's information for free, implementation for free. You know, at the end of the day, we can all hear about these things, but the people that actually implement are the ones that actually will be rewarded, whether it's financially, whether it's anything else. So that very simple action is what I'm hearing from you, is that simple action sounds simple, and it is simple, but... It is massively effective when, when implemented. Exactly. And it really, I, um, and I won't get into this a lot, but we, have you ever heard the expression, fish are the last to discover water? I haven't. I like it though. And so the, the idea is that we all live in a milieu, right? There's an environment and we don't even think about it because it's always been here. We've never known anything different. It just it just is, just like fish exist in the water and they don't even think about anything else. But we're wise to think about the water a little bit. And, you know, the fish who figure out, hey, I need to understand my water a little bit better, are more successful. They're happier, they eat better, and they're safer. And so we're way more than fish, obviously. And so as I think about it, we live in, in what is called the industrial age, right? We had an industrial revolution. It started in England, frankly, 300 or so years ago. And, you know, we started working on technology and we invented steam engines, you know, and today we have Zoom and the internet and Google and all this cool stuff, microphones and earbuds. And, you know, we have wonderful benefits come to us from the technology, the industrial age, if you will. We've also kind of destroyed the environment and killed off thousands of species and really messed up families and values and all kinds of other things, right? So there's a plus and there's a, and there's a downside. I like to think of human beings not as assets, right? Far too many businesses think of people as assets. And I have a, a master's in business and in business school, I was taught that assets are yours. You own them. You can do what you want with them. Excuse me just a second. Um, so I own these assets, and I'm going to do what I want with them. I can sell them. I can trade them off. I can fire them. I can lay them off. I can move them from here to there. They are pieces on a board that I'm going to move around to optimize you know, making money, most likely. And so... That vision of human beings is really destructive. And thoughtful people, even thoughtful people, you know, in the midst of big business, have for many, many years realized that, you know, that's not healthy, right? And so if we think of ourselves not as assets, but as human beings, what a shocking concept. We are human beings, right? We are a part of nature. We influence nature. We are influenced by nature. And I like this natural metaphor because I think it fits human beings better. 
And so if we think of values as a foundation, it's like having strong roots. So if you think of like an orchard, like I, and I like cherries, so I, I use cherry trees, but it could be whatever. But like in a cherry tree, what would be the advantage of a cherry tree have having robust, strong root system that goes deep and wide? Just thinking off the top of our head, Pete. Well, I suppose you've opportunity, you've got extra resources, you've got strength of character, strength of uh, presence, I suppose, really, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So there's any number of advantages. When there are times, so like in our part of the world, in the Western United States, we're having a late spring this year. We're all in the Northern Hemisphere, but, you know, spring for us, I mean, it snowed a few days ago. <laughs> which is pretty unusual for, you know, early May. Um, and it's been kind of cold and anyways, kind of typical spring, but a late spring. And so what happens on these kinds of seasons is like looking at my cherry tree. If I've got robust roots, but maybe it's been wetter than normal, with the soils wet, if I don't have broad roots, the tree's more likely to blow over in some of these spring windstorms, right? So by having this robust root ball, I can withstand the winds. And sometimes, you know, it's a little drier, right? Let's say you get into summer and it's drier than normal. When you've got the strong root ball, I go out further and I can get the moisture that I need. So there's all these circumstances in our lives that are sometimes less than ideal. By having these foundations, we withstand and thrive during these more tumultuous times, maybe even a pandemic, <laughs> you know? And so it gives all these foundational benefits, which in the end result in stronger trunk, more branches, more leaves, and more fruit, right? That's the outcome. And you talked about the internet, like you said, there is so much how how do I do this? How do I get more fruit? How do I have more leaves, right? And most of it is focused at that level. But what happens is by focusing on that level, and we've got all that weight up there, when the sun doesn't come or too much sun comes or the rain doesn't come or too much rain comes or the wind blows too hard or any of these normal things that happens in our lives. So we get fired. We have a relationship struggle. We Things aren't going well at work. Um, I'm struggling with some emotional things, loss in the family, transitions that I'm you know, not looking forward to, whatever it is. We have all of these things that test us and they try us. And by having foundations that are strong, which is what the 10 principles in my book are all about, we will normally and naturally produce more fruit because we're just set up to do it. It doesn't even take that much effort because it's just who we are is who we have become. So in the title of the book, right? New you, who knew, right? It is just you doing what is natural as, as to develop yourself to become the person that is more resilient, more persistent, that has that fire in the belly, that's stronger, more durable, more powerful to produce the outcomes that you've chosen to produce. And so the next nine principles really just build on that initial foundation of values, 
And then I'm going to burn through these kind of fast in interest of time because I love talking about these things, but we only have so much time, right? So awareness, a sense of awareness is the second principle. You're learning, intent, planning, and doing, right? Those next six principles is the self-efficacy. That is the control of your life kind of principles self-kindness, humanity, and mindlessness, I will leave as a teaser for the audience. Because <laughs> if you have a mind and I have a mind, being mindless cannot possibly mean that we don't have a brain. So it must mean something else. Um, but these are the 10 principles. And as an, an individual, any individual, I don't care what your race is, what your background is, what your income is, what your education level is, what your past experience has been, if you had a little trauma or a lot of trauma, whatever, it does not matter because all of these 10 principles are universal and they apply to all domains of every person's life in Ireland, in England, in France, in the United States or Canada, in Brazil or South Africa or Ukraine, who they have, are my prayers every day. Um, it doesn't matter where you are, who you are. These principles apply. And that's the beauty of them. I think it's the power of them. And they're very simple, right? These are the roots and the trunk. And they're going to help all of us accomplish our goals, direct our lives as the captain of our lives, instead of ceding that control um, to others, which we're not wise to do. Which, which of those principles really sort of stand out for you and has sort of almost been a, we could put this on the tombstone for David? Um, I think values, because values is the foundation. I describe them in an order that builds naturally and normally like steps, if you will, getting up to the second floor of your flat. Um, and it really starts with your values. That is the foundation. That's the outer stretches of your root ball, if you will, as a cherry tree. Mm -hmm. I think that's really the foundation where every one of us can start. And then we just build from there. Is life an oversized game of you versus you, do you think? You versus you. Um, I think it's, it's at the root, if you will. I think it's a foundation. Yeah, absolutely. It's not everything, right? And I'm not saying this is everything you need to do, right? So it's not, clearly, absolutely not. But what I'm talking about is building foundations that help you stay balanced. And it, what happens is when we don't have the foundations, right? These 10 core principles, strong roots and trunk. What happens is we spend all of our energy and time building the top of the tree. Mm. But when we are successful in building the top of the tree without strong roots and trunk, what we talked about earlier is what happens, right? We then are susceptible. We are more susceptible to the challenges and setbacks of life. And what happens with the raw, strong roots and trunk, we may have setbacks, right? There are seasons that we, we just don't control. 
but not having control over those external forces, we have much greater strength of root and trunk, a foundation of who we are, so that we are more successful within our circumstances than we ever would have been. And then when all the things line up perfectly, right, everything's going great, you know, the money, the relationships, the, the progress, you know, all that stuff lines up, all the, the fruit is huge, and we're enjoying a bounteous harvest. When that all lines up with the strong roots and trunk, we can actually bear more. We will actually have more output, if you will, because of the strong roots and trunk. So it doesn't matter if things are going well or things are more challenged. We are better off by having built these foundations. And then, you know, it takes maintenance. It's just sustaining. In hindsight for you, I mean, those... Those for 35 years in healthcare, I mean, is that like one big dress rehearsal, do you think? <laughs> it was certainly a learning experience. And I was able to, I mean, I hope me and obviously teams of people, I'm only one person, but, you know, we were able to touch the lives of thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people. And, um, it has been a wonderful journey. I feel very blessed every day, literally, for the people I've been able to help, for the people I frankly have been able to work with and what I've been able to learn from them. How far along your path are you, do you think? Are you fulfilling your potential? Are you nearly well, there? I'm, working I'm sure I'm not there. I'm certainly trying. I mean, one of the beautiful things about having both an inward and outward focus um, is that this really never ends, right? And this is not something I have to stop. I'm not going to retire from this. Um, this is something that goes until the day I die. And that's another nice thing about basing your life and your work on these kinds of foundational principles is that it, it never ends. And if people come across these and they're 20, you know, hallelujah, good for them. And if they're 80, hallelujah, good for them too. It doesn't really matter. The only matters that at some point in our life, hopefully when we become exposed to them, that we allow these principles to become powerful in our lives and to change our lives. And I'm going to apologize. I need to kind of wrap up pretty quick because I did just get a text from my brother-in-law. No problem. No problem. And I might need to go help my father. No worries. Well, if you then, if you were to try and describe your fire in your belly, David, in one or two words, what would they be? You know, it is love. It absolutely has to be love. And there's the kind of, I don't know, have you ever read Ogmandino, The World's Greatest Salesman? I have. It's beautiful. Right. And so, you know, he talks about love as being kind of his fire in the belly, as his secret weapon, if you will. So to me, that's a little trite, but it's still there. Right. I mean, it's good. Whether it's that or the love of God, the, you know, the love of a perfect God who loves his children perfectly and trying to connect and reflect that love is beautiful and it's very similar no matter which lens i look at it from um so this idea that i don't exist just to serve myself 
but I exist to leave the world a little better place than what it was before, I think is a beautiful fire in my belly. Beautiful. Give us a bit of background. Where can people learn more about you? Where can they reach out? Where can they get a copy of your book? What's the uh, call to action here? So my book is on Amazon right now, and it will have some broader distribution uh, coming up into this summer. Um, But right now I have an ebook and a paperback on Amazon. It's also an Amazon UK. So, uh, you know, all the English speaking Amazons. Um, And I've got an audio book coming out here, hopefully in June. So that's in process right now. Um, And that's the easiest way. My author website is simply my name. So www.davidredwards.com. Um, and you can get my book through that. You can read a little bit more about me. I do blog posts. I'm not as good as I should be probably, but every couple of weeks, hopefully something with some little additional insight on these 10 core principles of our personal or intrinsic motivation. Um, and those are probably the easiest way I'm on LinkedIn as well. And I'm on Facebook, David R. Edwards. Wonderful. Is there a final message you'd like to leave our listeners today? I guess no matter where you are at in your journey of life, your life is important. For you and for all of those around you, your life matters. I encourage you to attach to your life, to make it a part of who you are, the best most profound, enduring principles that you can find. Seek that light and truth in your life. I know you will be better off for whatever stage your life is at, whatever your circumstances are. If you will do that, you will have more fire in your belly. Love it. David, I thank you for your time. Thank you for coming on today and explaining that. I really appreciate it and wish you all the best with the book. And uh, no doubt there'll be more to come. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for your time. And really, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Pete, thank you. It has been a pleasure. I've enjoyed it as well. Wonderful. Till the next time. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you. 